It's interesting, isn't it, when the, the word worship is one that is used in so many different ways and in so many different contexts, but you have to consider as we begin a little series, a tiny series, just this Sunday, next Sunday, the following Tuesday evening as well, um, how do you define it? So often the word worship is used exclusively, isn't it, to describe our singing together uh, as a church, especially actually the experience of singing together, the emotional element of it as we gather to sing. And so we have now worship songs. We have worship leaders, worship services. There is a multi-billion dollar worldwide industry uh, of worship that produces the songs at an alarming rate, it has to be said. It's good to acknowledge, though, historically, uh, I'm not sure if you knew that, but know this, but uh, there wasn't really any worship so industry before the 1970s. Uh, it is a new phenomenon. Uh, there were no worship leaders, as people describe themselves today. How the word worship use, uh, is used now uh, it, by many is a new thing. And unfortunately, many people's understanding of what worship is, is often informed by that so-called worship industry rather than the word of God itself. So as I said, the aim over the next uh, couple of Sundays and the following Tuesday will be to get back to God, to hear him speak through his word to us, the Bible. Because we want to know, don't we, if we're Christians here today, gathered together, we want to know what true, authentic worship really is. I, I have it all prepared on, on the, uh, the overhead here. Pick the day of any day not to have this, but then we're, we're going to have to work without it today. So I've managed to kind of like scroll through all the kids' stuff, and I've got little drawings here for you. <laughs> okay, so we have to work with that. Uh, but I'd like you to picture, here we have, if you imagine the red circle is your whole life, Okay. Now, and imagine the, little, the, the next black circle, I couldn't get three colours, so the black circle, the next one in, is us gathering, it represents us gathering on a Sunday for church. And then this tiny circle right in the centre there, it is just our singing within that context of the gathering of the church. Whole life, gathering of the church, singing within that. Okay? Where do we worship? And our, is our worship in any of those distinct, different? And what is worship in, in, in those areas? Are, are some of them worship, some of them not? You see, what we're going to try and do is make sure that we are clear on those things. Because so very often, we are not. Certainly within the, the wider world. Many people just associate worship with that coming together, singing, and the emotional experience of that. I wonder how you would answer to those things at the moment. Well, that's our aim of these uh, next couple of uh, weeks. Um, let me just explain what we're going to do in the three sessions very quickly. Uh, we are going to, uh, we're going to hopefully see what authentic worship is. The first session today, we're going to see what worship is and how, as Christians, we're saved by Jesus and now called and enabled to worship him. Our second session, that's next Sunday, we're going to spend more time looking at the distinction and the similarities between a whole life of worship and as we gather to worship on a Sunday. There are similarities and there are distinctions. And in our last session on the Tuesday evening following next Sunday, uh, we're going to look at that smallest circle, that right in the centre, our singing as we gather. What is that? What's going on there? 
and perhaps also we're going to be looking at our emotions, our affections uh, within uh, that element as well. So broadly speaking, we want clarity and understanding. Firstly, so we avoid being reductionistic and therefore failing to worship God as he deserves. But we also want clarity, don't we? Because we don't want to deceive ourselves, thinking that we're worshipping God when we're not, as in according to his word. I guess if you're a Christian here today, you will want to be an authentic worshipper of God. And so I pray at many times this little series will be affirming to you. But let me just warn you, I think at times, just a few times, it may also correct your thinking. Just have the humility to accept that that may be the case. But if you're not a Christian here today, firstly, you're hugely welcome. Uh, It's great that you're here. I hope you find out more about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as we go through this little series. I hope this interests you as well, because whether you know it or not, you are a worshipper. We are all worshippers. Even if you don't call yourself a Christian at all, you are a worshipper. You just choose to worship someone or something other than the creator God revealed in the Bible. We'll look at that more in a moment. We have two main points today. You see them on your sheets. Uh, Hopefully that's uh, helpful to you. Um, But the first point is much more of an overview of worship throughout the Bible. The second point looks more specifically and, and goes to our second reading in John 4. I'm really sorry if you haven't got an outline. Um, pass them around a bit and uh, kind of use your phones, kind of scan them and all that kind of stuff. And hopefully you've got, you can make some notes as well. I'm sure that will be helpful. We'll be looking at that one key passage in John's Gospel for our second point. At the end, I hope we're going to pull out some implications, some applications uh, as we go through as well. So let's go to, and jump into our first main point, which is worship the Lord your God. This is going to be fairly dense, uh, this first bit, and then I'm going to draw some implications from it. Uh, so bear with me, think deep, and hopefully we'll have time for questions uh, at the end. Worship the Lord your God. We as humanity, we are made in the image of God, the Bible tells us. And as a result, we have been created as worshippers. For God himself is a worshipper uh, in, its, in his triune uh, Godfather son uh, relationship. As one scholar put it, we are, we are every one of us unceasing worshippers and we will remain so forever. As, worship, as we worship, or literally, what that word means is to give value to, to honour something or someone else. We are inevitably being shaped and transformed by that which we worship. We're shaped by that, whether that's something good or something bad. See, some people might worship truly destructive things in their lives. That is, they give ultimate value to that thing in their, they devote themselves to that in their lives. It defines their lives and it can ruin their lives. But many of us will worship, will give value and honour to good things within God's creation. Family and work and relationships and intimacy. And, but in placing them in a position of ultimate worth, we fail to give God the value of the worship that he deserves as the creator and ruler of this creation. And unfortunately, as a byproduct of that, we fail to enjoy those things, whether it's work, family, all of those good things, we fail to enjoy those things uh, in the manner for which they were being created. 
Now, the Bible calls that, you might look at Romans 1 for this, for example, a very helpful passage on it. It calls it an exchange of worship from God to another. The Bible term for that is idolatry. And from the beginning, there has been this battle raging in the heart of every human, a battle that the first Adam failed in within the Garden of Eden, but a battle that the second Adam, namely Jesus Christ, was victorious in. You see, if we want to understand worship, we have to turn, namely, to the perfect worshipper, that is Jesus. Because he has unceasingly worshipped God as the incarnate son. He never failed in his, to worship and honour God as he was created to do. That was wrong. He wasn't created as he was begotten to. So, anyway, but that he was ordained to is probably more helpful. What was true in eternity was true as Jesus he walked on earth. He kept the commandments. He never placed anything before his Father God. That is, he, he did not worship anything other than God himself. So Jesus, he is the perfect worshipper. Later we'll also see he is, the, if, if you like, the only worship leader. Uh, but we'll come to that. But please now, if you can, uh, turn. Why don't you turn with me just back to Luke chapter 4. Someone could shout out a page number. That would probably be quite helpful. 1030. 1030, page 1031. We could have turned to Matthew 4, similar passage, parallel passage, and it appears in John's Gospel as well. Sorry, Mark's Gospel. Here's the temptation of Jesus. You will, you'll know this, I'm sure, I'm very well. He's in the wilderness. Turn to verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. See, what the devil offers in verse 5 to Jesus is no less than Jesus has actually been already offered by his Father. If you want to turn back to Psalm 2, verse 7, you can see that. It makes it very clear. As the Messiah King, Jesus will inherit all the kingdoms of the earth. And what the devil is implying here is that Jesus will inherit all the kingdoms and all, therefore, the glory that goes along with inheriting all those kingdoms. Uh, if he only were to worship him, to give honour to the him. To bow down to him. That's what literally the, the word worship means. To bow down. That's exactly where both Adam in the garden and Israel as a nation went wrong again and again and again. They followed the will and the word of Satan rather than the will and the word of God. But Jesus, you see, is the perfect worshipper. He has unceasingly worshipped uh, the Father. He did not believe the lies of Satan here. In his whole life, whether it's thought, word, in every way, was an expression of worship to his Father. See, the devil is pushing here, isn't he? He's saying, I want this exchange of worship to go on from God to me, he's saying. But notice how the devil responds. How Jesus responds to the devil. Look what he does. He opens up God's word, doesn't he? He quotes scripture to the devil. 
Now, he doesn't do it to just kind of show off, you know, look at me, look at all these Bible verses that I know. No, he's doing it simply to express his active obedience to that word of God. He is worshipping, giving value to the Lord, his heavenly Father. And in so doing, he's given the power to resist the devil and it enables him to win over in that temptation. So you see, where the first Adam, back in the Garden of Eden, failed and brought this tyranny of kind of false worship into our lives, into humanity, the obedient worship of Jesus leads a new humanity to this now liberating glory of worship for which we've been created. Now Jesus does this as the incarnate word of God, trusting the word of God, and in so doing he enables those who would put their trust in him to be worshippers as well. Because we are, through his worship, redeemed from the curse of false worship. And that it only comes through faith in him. Now, look, I, I fully admit, that was pretty dense. So let me just kind of spell out in bullet points some of those implications, if, if I may. We are created as worshippers, made in the image of God. Secondly, our worship is continuous or unceasing. So worship is not something, it is absolutely everything. Worship isn't an activity of one's life, it is the activity of your life. Thirdly, in our rebellion, like Adam, looking back into the first garden, we fail to worship God and exchange our worship for God, for something other or someone else. Let me just uh, quote this if I may. When we sin, worship does not stop. When we sin... Worship does not stop. Now it changes directions and reverts back to what it once was, uh, even if only for an instant. See, repentance, you see, is the uh, turning from the worship of something other back to God. Worship of something other to worship of God. That's what repentance is. So that's third point. Fourth point, God requires exclusive worship. As Jesus reminded the devil, just look forward at one verse, Luke 4 verse 8. Again, he's quoting the law, the Old Testament here. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God calls us from the beginning to worship him and him alone. For he is a jealous God, the second commandment reminds us. We as creatures are to exclusively, wholly, unceasingly worship our Creator. Worship the Lord your God. Jesus quotes scripture here, it's actually from the law, uh, to take on the devil and open up a way for us to worship God. And if we turn to ourselves like the first Adam did, oh, I feel I'd like to do it that way. Oh, I want to do that. I buy just, you know, oh, it feels so nice to be able to go that way rather than listen and and obey God's word. If like the first Adam we go that way, our worship of God will be utterly inadequate, sporadic at best. We might choose to worship God for moments, but alone our lives are divided and compromised, and we all know that. 
whether it's a football team that grabs us, a good life of leisure and travel, whether it's a pursuit of pleasure or money, maybe all of the above. All of those things are good things created by God, but they can very easily distract us and turn our hearts and our minds away from God if we exchange our worship of God for them. It isn't that we can't enjoy them. I'm not being the biggest spoiled sport in the whole world here, by the way. Um, The danger is, and the inevitability often is for us, is that we make these good things, Tim Keller once put it, we make these good things into God things. Or ultimate things of value in our lives. But God in his love, seeing the inadequate worship of humanity, does not abandon us. Because in Jesus we have seen the, the one true perfect worshipper resist the devil, but he continued to obey the will of his Father, obey, obeying the word of his Father, where? Right up unto death on a cross. And that changed everything for us. Let me quote, Humanity will not be free until it is free to worship in spirit and in truth. And such freedom can only come about through Jesus' own worship. Such worship and service ultimately being expressed to the point of death on the cross. See, we're going to see now how that works out. Uh, And now as we turn back, why don't you flip over to John chapter 4 with me. Let's go back to John chapter 4. And we're going to dive into this passage. I hope this is particularly helpful. Here we see what kind of worship that God actually seeks in us. And also how Jesus makes that possible. So our second point, worship the Lord your God. His first point, now worship in the spirit and in truth. Oh look, if I'm really honest, we could spend a whole week, we spend weeks in this passage alone. It is so critical in our understanding of what worship is. Verse 23 and verse 24 are key. We'll come to those in just a moment on the subject of worship. But what we will see uh, is that Jesus, in his coming, in the time, the time is a really important phrase uh, within John's Gospel, that time of his coming and his work, particularly on the cross, we see it in his coming, there is a worship that he replaces here, and there is also a worship that Jesus enables. In John 4, let's uh, quickly run through the story very, very fast if we can. Cast your eyes down, you'll see where we're going. Jesus sits down in the well, he's thirsty, he needs a drink. And what follows in this meeting with the Samaritan woman is a, is a kind of a, a narrative which informs us of what it is to worship God, more, probably more than and better than any other passage within the whole of the New Testament. Look at down at verse 7, you see Jesus asks this woman to give him a drink. And, and that is groundbreaking in many, many ways. The readers, the listeners would have just been minds blown at this stage. A Jewish man speaking to a woman that wasn't related to him in public. It's nearly scandalous, close to that. Moreover, a Samaritan woman. Now, are we talking like... Milton, not Milton Keynes, it's even worse than that, but no, I'm joking. Um, it's, I hope there's no one from Milton Keynes here. You go, scrub that from the recording. Uh, Samaritans were just the runts. They were, they were considered you know, the, the worst of the worst. They had compromised themselves as a nation, intermarried with other nations. 
In verse 9, the woman questions Jesus following his request for a drink. We see that there, verse 10. We get Jesus' non-answer. It's rather an offer of a drink that will transform her forever. The living water that he expresses there is a theme that's been running through John's Gospel uh, from the beginning. A theme of total transformation that will be offered in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus knows her life, we see, intimately, all the sordid details, just as he knows ours. And the woman discerns very quickly that there is something rather unique, something special about Jesus. Look down at verse 19. She thinks he may be a prophet and therefore tries to engage. We're not sure, the scholars aren't sure, of why she then sort of engages in kind of worship conversation. You see what she does? Perhaps maybe to divert him away from all the details of her personal life. She mentions places of worship for Samaritans and Jews, we see. But then Jesus gets to the heart of what he'd already been speaking about. That is this total transformation that had begun from the beginning of John's Gospel. The living water was the first image he used in this chapter. And now he shows how worship will be transformed in him. Look at verse 20. The woman speaks about these places of worship, both of the Samaritans... And the Jews. Now, the, the Samaritans believed uh, worship should t- take place in their centre of worship, which was Mount Gerasim. That was pagan worship. Pagan because it wasn't authorised by God in and through his word. The Jews had their centre of worship, that was Jerusalem, uh, the temple there. Now, of course, that was authorised by God, wasn't it? And in and through his word. And that is why Jesus said what he does. In verse 22, look down there, you'll see, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. They created a place of worship that was outside of God's will and authority. Uh, But we worship what we do know, the Jews, authorised by God. Salvation is from the Jews, he says then. Jews have the temple. The temple was a place where God, by his presence, Uh, had manifest himself amongst his people. Uh, It was a place where the priests would make sacrifices for the atonement of sin and and they would proclaim the great truths of God's word and the promises of his word. And praises would ring out for all to hear. But Jesus says to this woman, look at verse 21, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He's saying everything is about to change. Everything. There is a system of worship that Jesus is about to replace, if you like. No longer will these places be the centre of worship for anyone. At all. Just take a step back, if you, if you can, for a moment. Um, consider this woman. Now, don't do that typical kind of Daily Mail thing, looking down at your nose and sort of detest her and think, oh, you know, I'm so much better as who am I? Don't cast judgment on her thing. Look at her and see someone who has exchanged their worship for God for other things. But that the creator God would presence himself in the temple near people like that. Near people like you. Near people like me. Isn't that extraordinary? That the creator God that just spoke and our creation came into being in all its order and splendour would make his presence known amongst people like you and me. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? 
Now we need to read, uh, but we, you know, if you to flip back into John 1, you'd see that Jesus has now come, though, in human flesh. He's made his presence amongst us, or literally the word in John 1 is, is he's tabernacled himself amongst us in the form of Jesus. God in his abundant love has, has come to dwell amongst his people in a new transformed way that would replace now this old system of worship. But why was this necessary? You see, the worship of God had centred around that temple. The Jews would pilgrim there to make atonement for their sins. But that whole system was an embarrassment to the nation. It had become totally corrupt. And by the time you get to, for example, Isaiah 66, it was actually, the word is an abomination to God. And so the time has come, Jesus says. He's going to replace that old system. But what is the worship that now that Jesus enables? He's going to replace that. What's, what will he enable? Verse 23. A time is coming now and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. True, authentic worshippers worship the Father. How, though? Two things. In the spirit and in truth. And it couldn't really be clearer, could it? Verse 23. These are the kinds of worshippers the Father seeks. He's not sort of saying... Kind of on a Sunday, I want this and on Sunday. He said, These are the worshippers I seek. This. And note that Jesus, speaking about true worship, um, doesn't mention music once, does he? Can you see anything around there? Any, any guitar popping out at the end of verse 23? Or, you know, you see a kind of piano sort of lurking around there in verse 25? No. I'm not diminishing those things, by the way. The third session, we'll be very much uh, looking at that. Note also, just imagine the context of this and how Jesus is speaking. There's no heightened emotional experiences here in worshipping God, is there? No, what do we see? True authentic worship is in the Spirit, firstly. That is having God dwell amongst us and in us by his spirit. Which is of course what the temple was pointing to. And it's what the new covenant promised for example in Jeremiah 31. And this is what Jesus enables in his coming. We worship God in the spirit which only comes by the means of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who gives that life-giving spirit that produces that living water in the believer's soul, both in this chapter and also if you look on to John chapter 7, for example, in verse 38 and 39. It is the spirit that dwells in us that enables us to worship God, the Father, through the Son. Basically, if you've never worked it out, it takes God... To work, to, um, it, take, it takes God to, uh, to come to us, to work in us, for us to be able to worship God. True, authentic worship is in the Spirit, and that can only happen through faith in Jesus Christ. In his removing of our sin as he dies on the cross, Jesus will enable God by his Spirit to make his dwelling among us and in us. And even in a woman like this, 
This woman by the well with all her husbands that's been in the past and the man she's with now is not beyond the reaches of God's grace. She leaves this encounter with Jesus as a true worshipper of God, indwelt by his spirit. True worship is in the spirit. But true worshippers must also worship God in truth. In truth. That is not straying from the truth of God's word or manipulating God's word to uh, have it say what you want it to say or feel. But notice it is both. It is both in the spirit and in truth. It's not the two separated. It is both together. True worshippers worship God in the spirit and in truth. It can't just be in truth if you're a bit of a studious type and you like to read lots of doctrine books and all that kind of stuff. You can't just leave it there. Also, it can't just be in the spirit, enjoying the emotion and experience of being in relationship with God. The two both hold together. I always find it funny when I meet people and they say, oh yeah, I'm thinking about going to a new church or... Yeah, people moving into London, perhaps central London, they go, I might go to that church because the worship's really great there. I'm going to go to that church because the, the teaching's really great there. And, and I sort of look at them and go, you can't separate the two. Jesus doesn't. Implications, therefore, of this passage as we close. The wonderful truth is that we don't have to go to a special place to worship God now. Through faith in Jesus Christ, with the Spirit in our hearts, obeying the truth of God's word, we can worship God anywhere, at any time. Every place is a place of worship. Every moment is a time for worship. I don't know if you remember, um, this shows how old I am. If you're a Christian and you're back in church a number of years ago, there was this terrible song by a guy called Brian Dirksen. And uh, it was called, Come, Now is the Time to Worship. Do you remember that? Every song leader I've ever kind of worked with said, oh yeah, I'll play that right at the beginning. Right at the beginning, because now I'm gonna, we're going to kind of worship God, and that's the time to start worship. And as we'll see next week, they're right, but they're wrong. As it, equally, as we leave this building today and you go about your lives on Sunday or you go to work tomorrow in front of all your spreadsheets or whatever you do at work, you know, that is equally a worship of God than it is right now as we come and sing before him, as we hear him speak through his word, uh, as we pray to him. There is no special place. There is no special time. Whether we're here at Sunday morning or at some Christian conference where the music is utterly amazing. And that would be a brilliant thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Whether we're at work, home with the kids, in our bedrooms, at the gym. Whoever we are with, whether we're alone, whatever time of day, whatever time of night, God is spirit. That is, he cannot be tied down, verse 24 says, and his worshippers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Any time, any place. Applications for us as we finish. If you want to be a true, authentic worshipper of Jesus, can I encourage you, why not spend time hearing the truth of God in his Bible each day? Because if you look at how Jesus worshipped, as he was tempted, for example, and all through his ministry, he relied on scripture again and again, the will and the word of his Father. 
and it was the power to push away the schemes and the lies of the devil. Consider your life of worship. Don't undervalue work, for example. It consumes so many time, so much time in our lives, doesn't it? Our work lives, whether that's study or in an office or wherever we are. Being at home, going to the gym, you are always worshipping. There's not a moment in your life when you are a non-worshipping person. You just have to consider what you are worshipping, who you are giving worth, value to. So we have to decide and fight so the object of our worship remains God. Because that has been enabled by the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit dwelling in us so that we can obey the truth of God's word in lives of worship 24-7. I guess uh, some of this will open up the question, uh, we're going to come to questions in a moment, some of this will open up the question, well, why bother coming here on Church Sunday? What is it, what, what, what's going on when we gather? As distinct from out there, or what are the similarities? That's next week, okay? So let's park all of those questions for then. But if there are any questions about what we've been looking at, uh, why don't you turn to the person beside you? What's been helpful? Any kind of questions, points of clarification? Turn to the person beside you uh, just for two minutes, and then if anyone's got any questions, we'll come back uh, and you can ask them in just about two minutes. Off you go. Turn to the person beside you.